Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about words, language, and semantics. I've been thinking about the power of the word and the powers we yield through word choice to manipulate communication. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, maybe. I've been thinking about how we tell our toddlers to use their words and how we sometimes use our words to deceive, manipulate, shame, confuse, and convince. We also use them to pacify, uplift, humor, and elate. Words are a tool, and they can be used for building things up or tearing things down. They can be used to shirk personal responsibility and to foster inclusion or ensure exclusion. The truth hurts, sometimes, but deception is a much more dangerous game to play. My guest today is Henry Beard. He attended university in Boston and went on to found the National Lampoon with Douglas Kenny and Robert Hoffman. He was the magazine's editor during its prime and is the author of numerous best-selling and semi-best-selling books. He's joined us today to speak with us about his most recent book, Spinglish, which he co-wrote with Christopher Cerf. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I want to start with something that I, I said in the intro sort of cheekily, which was that you attended university in Boston, because that's one of my pet peeve Uh, euphemisms. I notice a lot of people who went to Harvard will say, oh, I went to school in Boston. (laughs) And I always like just greets me. I'm like, okay, either you're being really humble or you're being so superior that you can't even mention the school you went to because it's so above where I went. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you an amusing story. Um, Many years ago, I I was living in New York City at the time. And uh, we get regularly called for jury duty. And um, for some reason, I decided uh, that I wanted to serve. And I ended up going to voir dire for a criminal trial, murder trial, down in the, the court in uh, downtown New York City. And uh, I went there wearing my army field jacket with my sergeant stripes. And when they asked questions, one of the questions they asked was, where did you go to college? And I said, I went to college in Boston. I got on the jury. I was the second juror picked. And it ended up being a, a nearly hung jury, and we actually did end up convicting the guy. When I left the jury room after the sentence was, you know, the verdict was delivered and everything, I stopped by the, uh, the door where the, you know, the court clerk is, and I said, I just want to ask you a question. He said, yeah, sure, what, what, what? I said, during voir dire, I gave an honest answer, but not a complete answer. He said, that's all right, everybody does that. But what was your answer? And I said, I'd gone to school in Boston instead of going to Harvard. And he paused and he said, there's no way you would have been on that jury, Harvard guy. So at least <laughs> once in a while, there's a, there's a defense for that. But your point is well taken. It will, and, and, and as is yours, there are reasons. There are sometimes reasons that we choose our words very carefully with intention. And we'll, we'll talk yeah, a lot of, about that. I want to start just a little bit about, uh, a little more, more about you. Um, you're back on the, the circuit. Um, interview circuit. Your book actually came out a couple years ago, and I was just thinking about that, and I was wondering if wordsmithing has taken on a new relevance in in our current society, and if it has in your mind. Yes, absolutely. And and this is something that uh, my co-author, Chris Surf, and I talked about uh, earlier this winter. Uh, Clearly, we're entering into uh, a time when words uh, are really being, uh, where spin is really gone uh, really off, off the map. 
uh, and we decided it would, it would be worthwhile to try to sort of reconnect the book with what's going on today. I mean, if we had started to write this, you know, a year ago, uh, the book would still have had everything that's in it, in it, but we, I think we would have probably, well, we would have added a lot more entries, but we would have made a bigger point about saying how, as you said, it's not just a question of sticks and bones, words can never hurt us. So words, uh, words decided the last presidential election, uh, and more and more, because of the, the polarization in, uh, in the political culture of the country and in the Congress and everywhere, the ability to use particular phrases or to twist a term actually has a surprisingly large impact, more than it probably has oh, uh, since the Nixon administration. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, maybe we'll get more deeply into that as we go along. But if there's something that if you've, <laughs> you've rounded it all up and determined there's one main factor, is there something that you think is the primary cause of that shift of it being so impactful today? Yeah, there's, there's several things. The first is, is, is uh, maybe the largest one is, is a technical one, which is the growth of social media. Uh, since we can now exchange sometimes very sophisticated looking uh, uh, documents or uh, claims uh, just without any editing whatsoever uh, and, and send them uh, to all kinds of different parties, see who picks up on them and have them re retweeted or whatever. You have a whole new source of what looks like information, but is often either uh, disinformation or misinformation, sometimes deliberate, sometimes accidental. It is getting spread all the time and repeated all the time. And it's, we always say that, you know, one of the things that has changed is that uh, political factions like political fictions. And that's true of both conservatives and progressives. Traditional media still exists. I mean, here in New York, at the New York Times, you've got the Washington Post, the Journal, PBS, and some of the networks are not quite as uh, politically directed as others. But we've come to a point when an extraordinary percentage of what we are presented with as news or information is presented with a purpose. It's not just, you know, a, a completely clean uh, uh, report of, you know, a ship sinking or a lightning strike. Um, a crowd of demonstrators appears. They seem to be opposing a particular party member or, or program. And immediately claims are made that they're all being paid by somebody or that the, there's been some Photoshop manipulation to make the crowd look larger or smaller. This didn't used to happen 25 years ago. Well, I was thinking about it as you were speaking that there, with this proliferation of options and outlets, as well as the speed at which the news is disseminated, that people may also tend to gravitate toward a way of speaking or a certain um, uh, lexicon of terminology that is more in line with them or more comfortable to them. And thus, that's where they end up going for their news. And so that's the news that they end up hearing. I think that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, there are obviously certain news organizations, the Fox, Fox News comes to mind, have developed a uh, really a, a not just well, a vocabulary of not of their own, but of their choosing, as well as a method of presentation, a certain level of, of you know, of, of, of anger or of interruption or importance. Uh, and some people become 
very comfortable with that. And you get, what's really changed, uh, one of the things that's changed to the largest degree is you really now can select the place from which you get, you know, your news and information. I mean, when I was growing up, certainly even during the next administration, um, there were three major commercial networks. PBS was there, but it wasn't really quite this as, as strong uh, a, a news source as before. There were many more newspapers, not just the big ones that are left. So you, the general uh, source of news obviously could often be, you know, um, inaccurate or slanted or whatever. But the general source of news was more or less independent and nonpartisan. Now I would say that the proportion has completely changed. And I would think that uh, what we think of as spun news is probably 80% and uh, semi-unspun is 20%. Spun and with with bias that is pretty blatant. And there isn't that sort of one trusted news source that at least I know I had growing up where you could turn on the TV and you knew you were getting at least just facts. That's right. I mean, it's, we go back. I go back. I hope you don't go back this far to Walter Cronkite. Davis I do go back to Walter Cronkite. Oh, you do go back. Okay. So those times, I mean, you might disagree with, with them from time to time. And you knew that they were part of an establishment. But they, they were an establishment that was dedicated in general to, the, you know, the proposition that uh, the news should be reported as it comes along, that you don't, you don't fiddle with it and you try to put it out as neutrally as possible. Obviously, you know, in wartime situations where the Vietnam War coverage so it was just terrible, nobody's perfect. But I think the general motivation was, I'm just, I'm a news person and I'm just reporting the news. Now, uh, boy, um, you know, uh, so much of what comes out, whether it's through social media or just, you know, uh, upfront media, um, clearly, if you want to have a career uh, in, 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 in news presentation, your best bet is to associate yourself with some ideological uh, viewpoint uh, and, and find a niche and become known as a spokesperson for a general point of view. I don't mean just a single thing like uh, guns or anti-abortion, but from a general point of view. And then the, the your audience is probably going to be firm and and guaranteed, and your career is probably set unless uh, you know you're a misbehaving older gentleman at a certain news organization who, who ends up being accused of mistreating women. And who even knows where that will land? But I think I it's true, and sometimes I think even the more blatantly radical, the better. And uh, and as you've heard uh, through the news, some other news outlets about some of the. Um, online news that was created that was purposely false news and alternate facts. And they were not even in line with those particular journalist quotes, air quotes, um, own beliefs and um, positions in the election. So I was thinking as you were talking about Fox News, and if that's become an oxymoron yet, or if just the term news now has a completely different meaning. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that one of the things and this is something I must say, uh, I didn't see coming, or we didn't see coming when we did the book, because we, we, would have, we, we wouldn't probably, we, I can't even think now, what the spun term for news should be. I know alternate facts and, 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 and fake news and all the rest, but um, I don't know, because we used to think of as news, the news was just the news. I mean, that, that's all there is to it. Yeah, but it, no, it, had, it right. had one meaning, and, and that's what I was saying. Yeah. That has even possibly changed 
which is frightening. You, I had read that you didn't do interviews for some time um, because you had been misquoted and that you had been so deeply sort of upset by it because people that you really cared about were hurt. And this was, you know, after you had been at the, the National Lampoon. Um, I don't know that, like, today, could you survive being a public figure? I, I wouldn't enjoy it, but yes, I, I think I probably overreacted to time. But it's an, it's interesting because it's the time that this particular thing happened, and it was an interview by a journalist uh, I won't mention that that, uh, that appeared uh, in Esquire magazine, and it was I mean um, I still shake in my head. It was a complete fabrication. It was just a, a bizarre and and to no purpose. I mean, it actually didn't uh, hurt me very much, but I was close to putting my mouth that uh, I I didn't even ever come close to. Saying, and I think that the journalist in question was kind of a, uh, a dork. I know whether, whether he was stoned at the time or whatever, and somebody else used those quotes. But anyway, without beating it to death, no. I, I now I, I, I would think that that's the normal thing. You better you better be ready if you're going to be interviewed today to take it to take on the possibility that. Uh, all kinds of things are going to be said that you said that you didn't say. I don't think, though, that it shows that you were overly sensitive. I think that it demonstrates what a different time it was, that our expectations of being represented accurately were very strong. And so if you weren't, it number one, it had ramifications that were maybe stronger than are now, because those people probably thought you had said that. And that also you were then in an area where you had thought you had control and then realized maybe you didn't. And whereas today you wouldn't expect maybe to have control. You're absolutely right on both points. Um, yes, I have an expectation that uh, particularly if you were giving an interview to what appeared to be a fairly, you know, uh, 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 worthwhile publication that you would be quoted correctly. Uh, and, and also that, that, that you know, in, in the general world, it would be expected that things would be accurate. And that's completely changed. And, and, and you're totally right. I wouldn't feel the same way today at all. So I want to talk a little bit about your first book that you wrote, uh, co-wrote with writer Doug Kenny right when you guys got out of Harvard. Um, Lord, uh, uh, it was a parody of Lord of the Rings called Board of the Rings, um, was published in 1969. And I want to talk a little bit about comic writing being a team sport, because I noticed with this book and then as you went along that many, many of your books were co-written. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it maybe says more about uh, my, my, my style of operating, but um, there's a great advantage to that. Uh, it's certainly very efficient, uh, and, you, and you know, you, you sort of two ends are better than one. You particularly if you look at this book, Spinglish, where Christopher and I did the research together, and we would compare notes, and he'd find something, and then I'd find something else, and he would open a drawer that I hadn't thought of, and I would look in the back of it. So that kind of book, it's a wonderful collaboration with Doug. We were at uh, college, uh, uh, and um, we had done a parody with the Harvard Lampoon of Life magazine, which was beautiful, but we lost a bit of money. So we tried to find a way to make them back some money. And uh, we came up with the idea. But at that time, Lord of the Rings was one of the best-selling, you know, it's mixed. It's like Harry Potter today. Uh, and, you know, cynically, we figured we'd just do a knockoff parody. Believe it or not, we sent a letter to J.R. Tolkien telling him that we were going to do it, sort of asking his permission. Got a charming letter back saying he was baffled why anybody would bother to parody it. But sure, go ahead, you know, enjoy yourself. I uh, found a publisher, and it, it did uh, over the years, it, it sold very well. But to continue your thought about collaboration, Doug, the late Doug Kenny, was just a phenomenal writer. And we sat across from each other 
at a table in the fraternity we were both in. And I tell you, he would type a hundred words for every word I wrote. He would write the stuff as fast as he could type. I could not believe it. I think we wrote the book in six weeks. Well, and it's a long book, so <laughs> somehow channeling. And do you? And what a little bit more about the approach to that. Do you set out sort of? Did you guys outline what the parody was going to be like, or do you just at that point dive in and start start riffing on one another? Yeah, it was really. It was uh, yeah. It was really dive in. I mean, the first thing I remember, it was mostly Doug. He came up with the, the parody names. Of all of all the people, it was going to be good golf, golf instead of Gandalf, and it was going to be um, what was it, Gildo instead of Bilbo. And then once he got that, then he started thinking what those characters would be like. It was really quite remarkable. Now the advantage was, even though that's a huge trilogy and everything, the basic story of uh, Lord of the Rings is pretty straightforward. I mean, the magic ring, these evil characters and creatures, you know, all Some of good that. battles. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, the, the storyline was very well known. So it was just a question of how, uh, how, 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 I mean, how silly a fashion we could recapitulate the storyline uh, and, and, and make silly fun. So you also did a parody of a very successful parody of Playboy magazine. And I was thinking about how do you go about that? God, yes. Well, that's a nice story there, too, because my late... My late business partner, Robert Hoffman, um, we were in the, at the Harvard Lampoon building, and, and somebody said, it might have been Robert said, or it might have been Doug said, you know, if we're going to parody magazines, why, why don't we parody Playboy? And somebody said, oh, you're out of your mind. And Robert Hoffman picked up the phone, called information, got the number of Playboy Enterprises in Chicago, uh, called and asked to speak to Hefner. And the secretary said, yeah, who's, could I tell him who's calling? Say, well, this is uh, Robert Hoffman from the Harvard Lampoon, and we would like to parody Playboy. See, and Harvard was good said, for you then. Then, then it worked, yeah, for, yeah, it worked oh, your yeah. angle. <laughs> Believe me, you know. And uh, uh, we, we love the parody. And the secretary said, um, I'll speak to Mr. Hefner. He'll call you right back. And we thought, well, there's the big kiss off. Goodbye, Charlie. Fifteen minutes later, the phone rang. It was Hefner. And he said, I would, I'd be delighted to have you parody the Playboy. Uh, if you need investment backing, which for a variety of reasons we didn't, I'd be happy to provide it. I'll give you the name of my printer, our printer, and of the uh, company that distributes magazines. Uh, when are you planning to do it? And we said, well, we're planning to do it this summer to come out in September. And he said, that's terrific. And we were just stunned. Uh, and we realized that it could be done. And one of the reasons we realized it could be done was a few years earlier, my collaborator, Christopher Surf and a couple of his classmates who were at Harvard a few years before me, had done parodies of Mademoiselle magazine in Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle had a contest between the Yale Record and Harvard Lampoon for who could parody their slowest summer issue. Harvard Lampoon won, and they learned how to make a magazine really look like a magazine. Now, they did that with the resources that were provided by Mademoiselle, but, you know, you had beautiful pictures, the ads looked right, all of the design, the art direction was terrific, so we realized that was possible. And we were lucky to have uh, be able to get some people who had their kind of capability uh, to do it. But it was it was it was a game changer. The National Lampoon clearly came directly out of the success of the Playboy parody. So let's talk a little bit more about Spinglish. Uh, how to succeed in business and politics and everything else without really lying. With Spinglish, the definitive dictionary of deliberately deceptive language by the semi-best-selling satirists Henry Beard and Christopher Surf. So 
So I want to start with the um, term best-selling, <laughs> semi-best-selling, because that's another peeve <laughs> of mine. Um, there's someone I know who uh, advertises being a, a best-selling author. And again, it makes me crazy because I'm like, there are norms. You have to follow norms for things to be authentic. <laughs> and in their definition of best-selling is sort of tied to an obscure category on a, an obscure format in a very small time frame, which is not what I think of as, as best-selling. So... So we can start there. <laughs> You're completely right, and we love. I love the term semi because this is you know hospitals offer semi-private rooms. Well, a semi-private room is a room that has more than one person in it. You know, it's like a co-exclusive real estate listing. It's not exclusive. There are two or three agents involved. So when we say semi-best-selling, we are deliberately playing the game uh, that you pointed your finger at, and that's. Uh, I mean, another, another example of it. Um, we put on the cover that we were the winner of the um, of the Pulitzer Prize. Actually, what we could have put on the cover was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, because in order to be nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, all you have to do is fill out an entry form and send in a check for fifty dollars. Which is very different than submitted our application. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, and this is this is one of the things that you know we obviously call attention to our we call us the, the artillery in ourselves in saying that we're, we're semi best-selling authors. But it's interesting because I hadn't thought of this as well as when when you do that, you and if if that somehow catches on, you've created now a tier of levels rather than just being best-selling or not best-selling. Now there's best-selling, semi-best-selling, almost best-selling. I mean, you could imagine that that advertising could start to create now, you know, like first, second, third, fourth prize. Well, absolutely. For years and years in just basic merchandise marketing, there's always been good, better, best. Uh, there's usually three versions, or it used to be, I don't know what's going on now with Amazon, but three versions, like three kinds of paint. And the really, really good paint, the best paint is kind of, is called deluxe. And the kind of lousy, cheap stuff is called, you know, um, basic or, uh, um, you know, uh, standard. And the one in the middle is, is uh, our better brand or our preferred brand. So, I mean, it's all, you know, the, it seems to be the rule of three is the good, better, best has been around for quite a while. And maybe it's just the way the human mind works, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, in the middle. Uh, so it's 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 been a tradition, a commercial tradition. I mean, to be fair, in this country, a lot of what uh, determines Spanglish or created the kind of momentum and background for it is commercial. Uh, you know, we're trying to sell you stuff, so we want to put things in the best possible light, hide our deficiencies, and uh, a good use of language uh, uh, is a very effective way to do it. And so how did you and Christopher approach writing the book? Where did the idea come from? How did you divvy up sort of the duties and, and collaborate together? Well, this is a great advantage of uh, this book is made possible on the Internet. Now, prior to this book, he and I had collaborated, collaborated on the official Politically Correct uh, Dictionary Handbook, where, uh, again, we were able to go to the Internet and, you, you know, we typed in on Google, Politically Correct Terms, Politically Correct Speech, and, and you find a variety, a huge variety of samples and examples that you would have to spend weeks in a library to unearth. And with that book, as well as with Spanglish, the great thing about the Internet, the kind of collaboration was a lot of it was written when I was in California for the winter and he was on the East Coast. They completely, we would both go to the Internet. We both knew what the Internet was, and we would both come up with the same types of things 
and you just throw them back and forth at each other, send each other alphabetical lists of proposed terms and proposed definitions, and then comb them, put them together, pick the best, make sure that we had gotten the stuff right, and then at the same time create pages and pages of footnotes because one of the points we wanted to make was that we didn't make this stuff up. The amazing thing is you read through this book, you say somebody must have made this stuff up. Well, yes, somebody made it up, but it wasn't Christopher and me. It was some politician or some merchandiser, some real estate agent. You know, somebody tried to pull a wool over our eyes. And so is it is the book funny? Was the intention for it to be funny? Did it get less funny to you two as you were working through writing it? No, it was, it really was intended to be funny. I mean, I'm not sure if it would have been as easy to be intended to be funny under the current circumstances we're living through politically in America. But at the time, just unearthing this stuff and realizing that so many of these terms are just, I mean, I, I, we always point out that the, one of the great um, benefits of the English language, other than the fact that it has a million words and a billion people speak it, is it's really two languages. Well, it's more than two, but two basic languages. Uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, English, the basic thing of, uh, I am going to kill you. And then Latin, I am going to terminate you with extreme prejudice. So once you realize that you've got this, this way of saying things in two ways, and that the, and the Latinate method lets you beat around the bush and hide what you're really doing and sound pretentious uh, and, and sell you a bill of goods, oh, it just becomes such fun. And then it was a question how many of these things can we find? And we found so many we couldn't believe, in, in so many different categories, you know, in the world of arts, medicine, obviously, you know, as I say, real estate, sports, everywhere. There's a whole different language that has been come up with to, to benefit, you know, the owners, uh, the practitioners, whatever. Well, I was going to ask you, had it always been around or was it a new phenomenon? And we already talked about it definitely being a different phenomenon. But then I saw one of the, um, parts of the book had talked about Julius Caesar and using pacification to justify his bloody victories during the Gaelic Wars. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's not new. I mean, really. No, no. And remember, even in America, uh, manifest destiny was the term that we came up with uh, to describe what was basically a continental land grab. And Indian reservations were, you know, basically concentration camps for Native Americans. And we used the term benevolent assimilation to describe the violent seizure of the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. So we've been doing it for a while. And, of course, uh, we get to the time of uh, George Orwell in 1984 when it really comes into focus. But it's been around a long, long time. Well, and I could barely get through the after I'd gotten through the A's. I think I had to lie down. <laughs> I was getting so depressed. <laughs> so let's let's start with euphemisms. Um, and uh, a new euphemism for affirmative action is uh, race-sensitive admission policies. And that was uh, in the dissent opinion by Justice Sotomayor. Um, a couple more. We've got organic biomass for sewage sludge. Um, drunk, over-refreshed. I'm wondering if those are the same or there's some subtlety um, or if they differ somehow from adult beverage. So, <laughs> so, so does the euphemism have a, a positive place in our uh, vocabulary? Yes, it does. And I mean, I mean, uh, there are, goodness knows, harmless euphemisms. Uh, the problem is that uh, euphemisms can be, uh, can be crafted to cover up some, you know, some, some really uh, pretty awful things. And unless we pay attention, uh, 
you start listening to these things and you don't realize what's really going on. And I, I, the military, of course, is the, the classic source of this because, you know, uh, if, if, if you drop a bomb on a hospital that you really intended to drop on a tank, uh, it's incontinent ordinance. Now, you know, you think, oh, my God, incontinent ordinance, you're not going to pull your hair out. But if somebody says, we dropped a bomb in an orphanage, uh, I think we're going to get a response. So, you know, once you go, start going down the euphemistic route, you, 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 you raise, the, you, you create the problem of just fundamental, fundamentally hiding facts that probably people would be better off knowing. Well, another one that was in the book was binocular deprivation, which wasn't doesn't sound so bad as blinding the animals that we're doing research on. And I thought it, it does, you know, it's, it's a, a tricky one, because it does a little bit more than just hiding the facts. It really alters your um, visceral reaction to the term when you hear it, and which then I think alters your intellectual um, analysis of it, and then maybe even whether or not you choose to act regarding what you heard. Yeah, I mean, really, so many of these things are are designed to uh, eliminate outrage or reduce outrage, uh, or to hide what is clearly, if not criminal behavior, really, I mean, horrible behavior. Uh, I mean, one of the classic things, to, uh, no surprise, is the number of euphemisms or descriptive terms for firing somebody? Okay, here's a quick. Here's a. Those quick were blast. some funny, even though the the actual act may not be. Yeah, but I mean, get this: attrition, Bangalore. If the job went to India, decrude, dehire, deinstall, deselect, excess, future endeavor, involuntary leisure, let go, make available to the industry, make redundant, manage for value, non-renew, offer a package to, out place, present with an early retirement opportunity, select out. Send into phase retirement, severance, surplus, unassigned. Yeah, I really like the new career opportunity. (laughs) Putting the spin on, you know, we are doing you a favor here. Your life is about to begin anew and fresh. Absolutely. And and so let's talk a little bit about that, where it's this intentional, fabricated... Um, manipulation. And I was thinking the one you, you had it with telemarkers that, you know, they've got this whole language about how they're reaching out to you. And so they sort of start off as, hey, we're not bothering you. You're, you're mistaken. We're actually doing you a favor here and reaching out. That's right. Because when they say for your convenience, it's for our convenience. Let's face it. You know, it's for your information. No, it's for our information. And I think we've gotten used to that, but we don't, and we hear this and we, we, we hear it, but we don't hear it. I mean, you sort of hear it, but you don't listen to it. And again, because of the way the language works, we become habituated to it. It just becomes like, oh yeah, what the heck? Uh, yeah, and you really have to do the work of saying, well, what do they really mean? And what do they, what, you know, uh, uh, you know, when I say we, we, we really appreciate your patience when you're waiting on the phone. Yeah, but we don't appreciate it enough to hire 50 more people to answer the damn phone. Well, and, and too, it's, it goes like a little deeper because they are playing on our sort of habitual cultural responses 
that if someone is being polite, that if someone is reaching out, that if someone is thanking us for something that we, we are questioning we aren't really doing, um, and if we really notice, you might make it you more mad because you're like, I'm not being patient. But, but I think it can be, in a lot of circumstances, very effective because they are playing on those, you know, from a psychological perspective, the way that we operate and operate within our society. Well, it's absolutely true. And I mean, the most dramatic, very recent example of that, of course, was the uh, Dr. Dow, who was dragged kicking and screaming off a United Air- Airlines flight in Chicago a few days ago. And Oscar Minos, the uh, president of the airline, first said that all they were trying to do was reaccommodate a customer. Now, uh, you know, when, when he loses two teeth and has bloody nose and has to go to the hospital with a minor concussion, I would say the reaccommodation uh, was perhaps a little bit more intense than we would have preferred. But that's just an extreme example of what you were saying. We're trying to make it seem like it's, we're doing you a favor. We're, we're providing a service to you. When, when not only are we not providing a service to you, we're providing a service to ourselves, but we're actually providing a fundamental disservice to you and trying to convince you that it's for your convenience. I was wondering a couple things. You know, when does it get dangerous um, with imaginative journalism, a great one, um, and alternate facts, which that, that again, is just, you know, it doesn't exist, right? That That isn't something that is just really a lie. Um, but so when does it cross that line from the telemarketer that's you know not not such a big deal to something that ha- is happening within our language and within our culture that that is dangerous well i mean i think it's it's uh it crosses our mind uh, our line when we get into areas like the behavior of police uh the, the behavior of our military uh, the be- the behavior of uh, you know, officials in the government who have the power to, uh, you know, inflict considerable harm on le- uh, legitimate citizens. And, and when we start, uh, you know, hearing words, you know, you, you have to remember that in, during the Second World War, the Department of Defense was called the Department of War because the War Department did war. That was what it was for. Now, of course, the Defense Department, okay, defense is a perfectly legitimate term. It's not the Department of Offense. But you can see the road that we've been going down. It's harmless. I mean, it's fairly harmless when I'm trying to sell you, uh, you know, a mouthwash and your results may vary uh, and check with your doctor and read the fine print. But, you know, in some of these things, uh, particularly in, in, in criminal justice, uh, and in, in you know military operations, it, it, it's 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 really uh, it's, it's disruptive, and I, I think it, it you really need a discourse in a democracy about some things, and this kind of just papers it over. We don't have a problem. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Henry Beard on spinning and spun Spinglish. Um, And when we come back, we're going to talk about when it's just a lie or just plain old rude. So stick with us. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported radio. All right, we're back. And this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, speaking with Henry Beard. And so, Henry, talk about when it's just a lie. One of the um, pieces I saw in the book was about something being all natural and nothing artificial. 
as far as advertising a, a food product or a supplement. So when is it spin and when is that a lie? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, you could make the case that uh, really a, a substantial percentage or proportion of things that are spin really, really are a lie. I mean, uh, spring water, uh, here's one that uh, the FDA noted that since no claim was made in the sexual location, pictured in the vignette was the actual spring. The labels did not violate their, re- their regulations, even though the spring water was obtained from a well contaminated with chemical solvents, including trichloroethylene, and it was located in the middle of a warehouse facility next to a state-designated industrial waste site in Massachusetts. So that's a lie. Now it's charming; it's spring water, but that's a lie, and it's a lie with a kind of a with a kind of a you know uh, a problem attached to it, which is the water might make you sick. Well, when I was in law school, I'm sure we can talk about it now, but then we couldn't. She worked, was doing an internship with Evian, and she, she said, I can't say anything about it. She's like, but just reverse the letters, and what does it spell? And, you know, <laughs> it's naive, and she just left it at that. Yeah, just let it go at that. Yeah, perfect. There were a lot of, and this also was when I had to take a little break from reading, the, the misnomers for councils and organizations in our country, where the, so many of the names specifically and intentionally imply the exact opposite of what they are organized around to do. Yeah, I think that's, you know, America's for progress or uh, a whole lot of these things that turn out to be conduits for billionaires to to give money to to lobbyists to achieve, you know, whatever they want, building an oil pipeline uh, or or whatever. Uh, The Club for Growth. Uh, which is an attempt to, you know, uh, cut taxes for everybody that makes a lot of money and screw everybody else. This has become so common. I mean, uh, but this has been going on for so long. I mean, in the old days, you would have a pretty straightforward group like the National Association to Advancement of Colored People, which is, you know, sounds, you know, uh, maybe a little bit uh, modest and mild, but at least pretty much tells you what they had in mind. Whereas now, you, you know, again, they, you know, Americans for progress. What? What progress? And there are just hundreds of these. I did, I did, um, I, I like there was a balance, you know, there'd be then the humorous ones that could bring me back to going forward and reading through the, the rest of the alphabet, um, which some of those were using known figures' actions to coin new phrases, like the Madoff Social Security System or a Macaca moment. And yeah, the, I mean, it's a, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the other one was the code for the uh, the adulterer, which was the Appalachian Trail devotee. Oh, that's classic. Yeah, I mean, when politicians are really caught in the head in the headlights, um, they they <laughs> they definitely uh, they they really have to reach out. And hiking the Appalachian Trail has certainly gone down in the language as one of the great um, cover up phrases of all time. Uh, man, of course, uh, is. And now a serving congressman after being thrown out as governor, so I guess it works. And then there's some that were just sort of rude. I mean, I think there, there, you know, one was um, Rush Limbaugh calling single unwed mothers receptacles for male semen. So it's yeah. like, is that a euphemism, or is that is that just plain rudeness? Yeah, and I think you make a point there that, that sometimes something that might be construed accurately uh, as a statement of fact um but is presented in such a way as, as to uh, completely you know denigrate or or, or debase uh whoever is being described uh, is a kind of spin 
it certainly it may not be a, a complete deception, but it's, it's it's deceptive in the sense that it's triggering a response that is that is really out of out of proportion to to whatever is going on. And so you can use you know you, you're quite right the opposite of using very mild sounding uh, you know uh, uh, an uncontrolled uh, 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 what is it uncontrolled access to the terrain for a plane crash. Um, you can use very strong words. Uh, necessarily strong words to describe things that you don't like to make them sound probably a little bit worse than they are. And as we talk through this, it seems like where it is most dangerous is sort of or can be in that middle territory where it's not so blatant um, and so off kilter that we obviously recognize it for what it is. It's sort of those ones that are more subtle. Um, I was thinking about um, an experience I've had a, a couple of times on Airbnb or in Verbo renting an apartment, and you learn to recognize the code, but at first it has you know negative results. They'll say a garden apartment, which actually means underground, no windows, or they'll say solar heated <laughs> pool, which means it's heated by the sun and nothing more. Um, the book, I think you had one that was called um, Bright and Sunny, which meant there was there were, weren't going to be any trees or, or anything around. Um, so we can kind of learn to decipher the code in some areas. Um, I like the codes, uh, bath salts for synthetic narcotics. So obviously the people who need to know the code, they know what that means. But in the other areas that we sort of touched on earlier, maybe with torture being called enhanced interrogation techniques, to me that's when it gets a little bit um, subversive. Like that's where, when we might not notice what's really going on, when it can have really negative ramifications. Yeah, and a good and sad example is um, the military um, at Guantanamo prison in Cuba uh, decided to describe multiple suicide attempts by prisoners who've been held there for a very long time as a self-injurious behavior incidents. Now, you know, uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty deliberate. I mean, you, you've got a pretty awful thing and you're working really hard uh, to come up with something. And to make it sound like it isn't anything that, you know, it's problematical, but not anything that needs some dramatic immediate attention. Well, and I think that's where it gets murky and it gets tricky. There were a couple areas where you could look at it and say, well, we're being sensitive, where instead of calling someone psycho, we call them an emotionally disturbed person. But there, you wonder, is it a slippery slope? Because there was another example where, uh, we have switched over to behavioral health versus mental health. And as things go on, you know, does that imply a choice in action? Whereas mental health would maybe be just considered more the state of someone's physiology. Whereas behavioral health, we think, well, are they choosing to act this way? And does that then have implications of responsibility and blame? And, and so language is important. And the subtleties of language and the shared meanings. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and one of the things that Chris and I, you know, sort of went back and forth on is just the point you made. There are some euphemisms, a lot of euphemisms that are really either harmless or funny or, you know, who cares? I mean, we don't always want to go around all the time, you know, uh, having to use uh, extremely basic, uh, you know, bathroom vocabulary to say that you're, you're going to go, you know, you got to go see the man without a dog. Um, so that, that's okay, but it is a slippery slope. And I think that uh, 
I, I guess you could say in our in the defense of our culture that it's nice that there is this kind of uh, notion that would, a few things we could kind of not necessarily hide, but talk around so we don't always have to come out and and say, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is a slippery slope. Once you get down that, that road, it really becomes it becomes so easily to to apply it to things that really shouldn't have it. And your and mental health is that's a that's a, a a classic case because why why is behavioral? Yeah, I don't know. Are you starting to say it's your fault, but you're putting your finger on it because that's the first step. And then the next step is it becomes we're trying to make it clear that the the, the mental problem was not the problem created by you know some uh, mistreatment by the state or a school. This is really something you brought to the table. It's your problem. We're not going to deal with it. Yeah, you're right. There was one I just had to say why. It was the combat emplacement evacuator. We shouldn't even tell people what that is and let them guess. Yeah, I was in, I was in the Army. It's an entrenching tool. It's a, it's a shovel. It's a shovel. Um, yeah, it's a shovel. But to be fair to the Army, and I was in the Army Reserve in the late 60s. I didn't have to go to war, I'm happy to tell you. Um the army is just full of this stuff. They just loved it. You just couldn't say anything in, in any plain language. It always had to be some absolutely ridiculous thing. And it just became a habit. I, 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 and once you, you get in that habit, and most of it really was harmless. It was silly. Uh, but some of it wasn't, you know, like dropping bombs on people. And, and um, where do you think so, that initiated from? Or, or, you know, what, you know, what was I, the I, original impetus? It's a good question, I and mean, I mean, we never were able to completely figure it out. I mean, it's clearly been around, particularly in the military, for for quite a while. Partly because it's a little complicated, but um, when you're uh, launching an artillery uh, uh, attack, uh, and the guy, uh, you, you say, um, "How did it go?" The guy on the other end who's observing the explosions, you do not want to say him say. It, uh, it, uh, it was it was right. It was just right because you'll think it went to the right. So the army would come up with it was correct. It was accurate. You know, they would have these words to avoid any kind of confusion because the English language has a lot of confusion in it. But I think it's also uh, I don't know <laughs> just whether it's the design of the uniforms or whatever. But I think when the when the first war was was one of the biggest wars we were got in the Second World War. The military at the time of the beginning of those wars, particularly the Second World War, was full of professionals. They've been around the whole time. And they were a tiny part of the enormous uh, combat force that eventually was mobilized. And they had their own language and their own culture, and it just became the one we use. One had a lot of this, but also maybe originating from the need to be secretive when they were communicating about where their bases were located or a military action they were taking and not wanting anyone who might overhear the communication to know exactly what was going on. And it just kind of spun out from there. Absolutely right. That's a, a, a very big part of it. And they would come up with a whole variety of, of codes. But just, to, yeah, as you say, just a normal kind of... Uh, 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 balderdash verbiage uh, would confuse any enemy listening on the other and try to figure out what was going on. And then they would sometimes um, do even more colorful ones to, 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 make, it, to make it even worse. But it, yeah, it just, it, it's, but it's also interesting because people who served in the military in the Second War and, and later on in Korea, Vietnam, once you pick up that technique, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of stays with you. Uh, so 
uh, I'm not blaming the military for coming up with all this talk, even though they use a, a lot of the worst stuff uh, to, to cover up bad things. But it is interesting that, that it's been around for quite a while. Well, there were a couple other areas, and I, I wonder if this is new or newer in its proliferation, but the, the ra- elevating status. So even just the term barista. You know, we're yeah, giving legitimacy yeah. to something. Nudists is, uh, is now clothing optional lifestyle. So somehow sort of giving <laughs> credibility or elevating the status of something. Yeah, it's good. And there's a couple of reasons to do it. If you use the term barista, maybe I don't have to play, pay the person so much. You know, Or maybe you do have to pay them more. Hour, right? Because you're a barista. You're a barista. You're still getting 12 bucks an hour. Right? But you're a barista. And you're going to be able to put that on your resume. Uh, so some of it is that. Oh, there you and go. So it's, it's corporate. It benefits corporate America. Yeah, it does. It generally does. I'd rather I'd rather re- reward you with a term than with a paycheck. So I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, there was an interview you did with Split Cider in 2012 with Mike Sachs, and he asked you, "Do you think the magazine could work today as well as it did in its prime?" This is talking about the National Lampoon, right? When it had over a million readers, so much of this type of humor depends on the audience's knowledge of what's being parodied, and a lot of the print formats you dealt with aren't as popular as they used to be. And you said that's absolutely right. It was a moment of shared experience with the visualization of a lot of print and the introduction of television after World War II, and this was for my generation. You had this attic stuffed with shared experience and memories. And I'm wondering, you know, nowadays, even people that are educated at the same level, they share, um, they lack a, a shared education. You know, my parents, even though they were educated in different countries, they had a shared knowledge base. And I'm wondering if that experience now with people having such different levels of experience and knowledge and different educations, if that allows for such manipulation of meaning in our language today. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I mean, again, uh, uh, what I was saying uh, at the time, was it really did feel like the, the end of the 60s, early 70s. So we, were really, we had access to everybody. Everybody shared it. Everybody, we knew exactly where we were going. Anything you said, any reference we made would be almost immediately uh, picked up. And it was pretty direct and deliberate. I think that that has broken down for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, again, social media, cultural change, just the velocity of change, the incredible wash of information. So today, I mean, the, the, to me, the, 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 one of the most successful comedy enterprises is Saturday Night Live, and even more successful right now because it's able to, 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 have, to put its attention on the Trump administration, you know, with uh, most of McCarthy, with Sean Spicer and Alec Baldwin doing Trump. And now that is something that everybody shares. But there isn't there isn't an awful lot else that is as, as easily accessible to the to you know the entire culture. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's that's what that's one of the things that's happening, and I think it's one of the things that we have to deal with. That uh, it's not the worst thing in the world to have a multiplicity of experiences and, and cultures, uh, but it does require us to pay you know, maybe a little closer attention uh, to how we you know express ourselves and and discuss uh, critical issues. Well, even the title of your book you know, how to succeed in business um, without really lying. If, you know, if you, I thought, huh, I mean, I know what that's parodying, but I wonder if, yeah. if most people do at this point. That's a good question. I really don't know. When we came up with that title, 
uh, Chris said exactly the same thing. He said, do you think everybody, uh, anybody, most people remember that? And I, we came to the conclusion that because it, 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 it had such a rhythm to it that, it that it probably would, and that we had enough other ways of saying it that definitive the, the dictionary or delivery of the language uh, that we could probably say it as many ways as we possibly could in the cover to make sure that we were getting the idea across. But you're quite right. Uh, that book was much more, uh, was much bigger a long time ago. So we talked just a moment ago about elevating status with words, and we can also do the opposite. Uh, and you had some good examples in your book. Um, one, big pharma, that's just now a derogatory term and only used when you're meaning it to be derogatory. And then also um, using Barack Obama's middle name, um, Hussein. And I thought that's one of those things until you pointed it out. You know, I, I was very aware that often people weren't calling him President Obama and that that had been a okay. shift. But until I, I saw and you compared to, do we even know any of these other people's middle names? No. I know. John Sidney McCain uh, and uh, uh, Mitt Willard Romney. Uh, we didn't hear that an awful lot, do we? Uh, and then the same kind of thing came to, you know, it wasn't the Affordable Care Act. It was Obamacare. Okay. Uh, during George W. Bush's term, as an attempt made to, to, to refer to the Iraq war as the Bush war, but it really didn't catch on. But actually, the, the treatment in the press and by opposition of President Obama is a, a, a dramatic illustration of what language can be used to do. Uh, and, and the middle name is just, just a perfect example of, uh, of that. And it seems so harmless, but of course, it's so deliberate. So, so let's talk a little bit more about why it does matter. Um, I also was aghast at um, the term compassionate disruption, which was used for displacing homeless people. Um, you know, that one's almost so, so far. You're, you're thinking, okay, like, will I be tricked? But there are others where they are subtle and they do sort of affect your reaction to it. And there, I think, is a, a sort of a battle of words going on around undocumented workers at this point. Um, are they aspiring citizens or are they illegal alien rapists? Uh, you're exactly right. And that's, a, that's an, uh, an excellent example because depending on which term a particular politician or uh, a spokesperson uses, you, you pretty much immediately know what their political, their viewpoint is. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's things like raising taxes. No, we're not raising taxes. It's budget reinforcement. Uh, it's not a quota. It's a pluralistic plan. I mean, uh, so many of these things, it's, what's interesting is if, you're, if we pay attention, and I hope we do, is you point out, the term that an individual uses tells you what that person's political position is and, 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 and the, uh, the point of view that they're trying to represent and push. Uh, so I suppose languages, we know the language has always had that. Certainly in the history of our country, come up with, they've always come up with terms to make the other you know, side look bad. They'll crucify my country on a cross of gold. Uh, uh, James Ryan. Uh, but it's, it's become so universal now and sometimes so subtle. And so we, we kind of uh, take it for granted. Well, I'm wondering, too, if our identities start to align with the terminology that we adopt, as it has with our political party that we align ourselves with, and that we may vote for a political party that we don't agree with their stance on anything just because we align with 
that party as part of our identity. And if we start to do that with language and adopt these uh, one particular out of the various options for identifying a group of people, if that also doesn't solidify, you know, without maybe utilizing our judgment, but just on the basis of what words we choose, the position we're going to take on a particular topic. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that is something that has been going on more and more. And it's subtle. Um, and I suppose it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to resist. You can't be spending all your time every, every minute, every day trying to, to you know, uh, decipher exactly uh, what, what terms are being used and what the effect is. But we, I think it is important that we recognize that that's going on. Now, it may turn out to be the case since the polarization has become so extreme under the current administration and over, you know, a, a series of really critical issues like healthcare, uh, since most developed countries have a single payer system that we don't, or, uh, over the, the fairness or unfairness of the system of taxation, certainly over immigration. Since, uh, the last time I looked at the Statue of Liberty in the harbor, she was raising a torch, not her middle finger. Uh, we've clearly gotten to the point where the association with certain terms pretty much tells you uh, that somebody has become either you know, a prisoner of or a captive of or, or a willing adherent of a committed viewpoint. And some of these viewpoints tend to be quite consistent. You know, the, the feeling that the homeless are, are, that's their own problem, even though 55,000 of them are Vietnam War veterans. Uh, the fact that, the, you know, the illegal aliens, you didn't find out that they came here from El Salvador because the conditions there are so brutal that they really should be entitled to political asylum. Uh, we get to the point where we just kind of fall into the into the track of thinking, well, you yeah, know, what are these people doing here? And uh, you know, come on, what you know, they're taking my rent away, and you know, they should. Uh, I go to the hospital and I have to wait in line because they're giving it away. It 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 it's a slippery slope. I think we we can blame it all on the fact that maybe we don't in our schools learn enough history. You know, I think you make a very good point because when I was going to school, I went to boarding schools, but my wife went to public school in, in Albuquerque. You know, public school, when you graduated from public school, and I'm just, I am I was born in 45, um, you had a college education in this country pretty much. I mean, it was nice if you could go into college. But people with a high school graduate, you know, from anywhere, you know, maybe there were some bad parts of the Deep South, I don't know. But most of, most of anywhere, so education was a very strict and linear thing. You really did learn our history. It wasn't, you know, it was obviously it was twisted to some degree. It didn't, we didn't really tell the story of slavery or, or, or the uh, taking over the country from the Native American population. But on the whole, you know, the political parties and how the system works and what things mean and what to stand for, it was there. And people learned not just what they were taught, but learned to learn for themselves, to find out, to trust their own instincts, to, to dig a little deeper, to try to, to, try to discover what's really going on. We may have lost that. So let's swing back to one of your muses that you mentioned earlier, which is George Orwell and his book, 1984. I thought it was very apropos that in 1984, the U.S. State Department coined a phrase, arbitrary deprivation of life to cover friendly government assassinations because <laughs> killing was too broad. So you mentioned, you mentioned as, as your muses, um, the author muses, George Orwell and uh, William Lutz, who was an ardent champion of plain language. Uh, and then your two Spinmeister muses, Edward Bernays and Frank Luntz. 
So did those, were they actual inspiration or did they kind of come to mind as you were working on the book? Well, I would say that, that, that Orwell, Orwell was clearly an inspiration. The other ones came to, came to mind as we, we did a little bit of work. And, and certainly Frank Luntz, the Republican or conservative strategist, was just brilliant. Edward Bernays, the great uh, advertising guy, of, you know, who promoted cigarettes. Um, uh, you just, early on, you realize, look, there were some people there who really knew how to do this stuff. I mean, they were just masters of it. They just had great instincts for it. Uh, Orwell, of course, didn't create this stuff, but he spotted it. And that's why it's sort of the greatest inspiration, because he saw what was coming. War uh, but is then, peace, then freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Exactly. And, you know, we sort of giggled, you know, at the time. But now we're sort of thinking, we're getting, you know, wait a minute. We're getting kind of, uh, we're kind of inching, inching up on that one. As you said, like... Uh, Alternative facts, Orwell, I mean, he was freaked from hearing that. I mean, it was been like, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, so, you know, and, and there's, a, there's one of the synonyms for lying from uh, Mark Peters, uh, factually shaky, taking factual shortcuts. Uh, fact checkers will have some opportunities, said Wolf Blitzer, and reacting incorrectly to a reporter's question of, 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 of a basketball coach these people caught lying. So, uh, I mean, uh, Orwell, I, mean, I, don't, I wonder what Orwell would have thought. I mean, he had a very bleak viewpoint. Yeah, I'm wondering that, if uh, you, and, you and Christopher uh, came up with what his slogan for today might be. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, horrifyingly enough, as you point out, some of the ones that he, that he came up with sound very, sound very normal now. Uh, you know, they could say you wouldn't. You wouldn't go. Oh my God, that's Orwell. You say, hmm. I wonder what they're well, I wonder what they're talking about. And so, are you and Christopher working on a, a or have intentions to work on a new book based on this past presidential election or the current presidency? You know, we, we, we've been batting back and forth uh, several ideas. It's it's a challenge, partly because it happens. Everything happens so fast. It's hard to keep up with it. Uh, and there's obviously, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of uh, published publications going out there. And so we're trying to take a viewpoint um, that, you know, maybe gives a little bit more perspective or uh, uh, illustrates the, the, the background, perhaps a little more than the foreground. But it, it really is a challenge. And uh, uh, the thing of, you know, <laughs> it's difficult, you know, again, we used to make this stuff up. Um, when you have somebody like President Trump who says, uh, in, in a span of a very short period of time, the Chinese are currency manipulators. The Chinese are not currency manipulators, and I've never said they are. Um, I've never met uh, President Putin. I've met Putin, and I think he's a terrific guy. I've never met President Putin. I mean, the constant contradictions of a salesman, this is something we didn't encounter in, in Spinglish, because that's just outright, you know, that's beyond lying. That's just you know, well. I was going to ask if he's the crazy. ultimate spinmeister or something else completely, because there oftentimes he doesn't sugarcoat at all. His Easter tweet was "Happy yeah. Easter, everyone." <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think that he. I have to give him some kind of credit in a funny kind of way, instinctively, and partly because he. You know, remember when you're particularly a real estate salesperson, you go to somebody you want to buy a piece of property, you say, "You have the worst piece of property I've ever seen in my life. It's a stinking pit. It's absolute crap. I'll give you twelve million. And the guy says, "Are you?" kidding nothing less than 16 you find buys it for 14.5 and the next week he advertises as the single finest piece of property on the planet earth 
the most distinctive, remarkable geography. So if you're going to be that way, I can change my mind. I can, I can turn anything I say around on its head for my purposes, and, and who cares? He shoots from the hip and speaks out of both sides of his mouth, just to use. <laughs> more. Yeah, no, that's, that's, to use a couple of very nicely chosen, colorful terms of praise that for this guy are completely accurate. Of course, what what has changed is we, we, for a long, long time, going back to oh, I think Reagan was was pretty shrewd. John Kennedy was. Um, some of the others not quite as much. We kind of took it for granted that the politicians were supposed to try to be consistent, and if they got caught in some kind of turnaround, they'd kind of kind of wiggle out. I mean, remember, uh, Nixon's press secretary described an absolute bald-faced lie as an inoperative statement. Now, at that time, that seemed like, wow, wow, wow. Now you hear inoperative statement, you say, oh, okay, inoperative statement, what else is going on? It's just the, the, the whole tenor of things has changed so dramatically. I'm not quite sure, you know, how, you know, how people can respond to it. We'll have to wait for your next book to find out. Yeah, well, I, I would, we're definitely thinking about it. Henry Beard, it was such an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Hallie, it was a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope uh, I hope everything turns out well for all of us. 